Our God calls us to listen to his word, to heed it, its instruction today, and he does this through Daniel chapter 5 as we continue our series in this. Would you please stand out of reverence for the word of God? Again, that's Daniel chapter 5, and we'll be reading the entirety of this chapter today. Please give careful attention to this word. It is the word of the living God. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O king, 
The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such and be seated. The writing is on the wall. Roughly 150 years before our passage in Daniel today, Isaiah prophesied that God would raise up a Persian king named Cyrus to deliver his people from their enemies. In Isaiah 47, the Lord predicts the humiliation of Babylon, stating in verse 11, But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. About a hundred years later, through his prophet Jeremiah, he predicted that Babylon would be taken and her gods would be put to shame. Now in Daniel chapter 5, we see the fulfillment of these ancient prophecies. As on that date, October 12th, 539 B.C., the kingdom of Babylon is taken and the king is killed. On the night prior, as his kingdom is surrounded by armies and was about to be captured, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, threw a feast and gave himself over to debauchery and idolatry, mocking the Most High God. 
This is arrogance at its height. This is a king who thought, O king, I'll live forever. But that very night, his soul was required of him. This gives us a sober warning that perhaps this very night, our souls will be required of us and we must stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. What will we do? What we'll see in this passage is that God will not be mocked and that what a man reaps, that he will sow. For he is jealous for his worship. Therefore, the only sober and responsible thing that we can do is repent of our sins and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is only through these means that we can give worship and honor and the praise which is due to the Most High God. That's simply what this text calls on us today. To humble our hearts, to repent of our pride, and to look to the Lord Jesus Christ today. It's a good old gospel passage. To come to this conclusion, we'll consider simply two points. A foolish feast, verses 1 through 12, and a future foretold, verses 13 through 31. Let's look at that first point, a foolish feast. Last week, we came to the end of what you can call the Nebuchadnezzar cycle, wherein the Lord repeatedly humbled the king and eventually brought him to repent and acknowledge his sin, acknowledge the Lord and worship him as the king of heaven. Our text today is a parallel passage which serves as a hinge in the book of Daniel turning us to the handing over of the kingdom of Babylon, even as it was foretold with that statue of decreasing value. This is the end of the golden head, and we are now coming to the silver shoulders and arms. Chapter 5 opens quite abruptly. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. This is an abrupt opening. Who is King Belshazzar? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? What time is this taking place? These are fair questions. It's a kind of a shocking turn of events. Well, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC. His son then took the throne, but as kind of happened with Oriental kings, he was assassinated very fast. He was replaced by his brother-in-law shortly thereafter. And unfortunately, he did not reign long, and he left it to his son. And again, Oriental kings being the way they are, he was assassinated shortly thereafter. And one of the guys involved with this, Nebonidus, was made king. We know from historical records that Belshazzar is the son of Nebonidus who was the actual king at this time. But we also know that Nabonidus spent a long time away from the Babylonian kingdom, far off 500 miles in Arabia. He tended to like the, the worship the moon god, Sin, rather than the god of Babylon, Marduk. And that didn't go so well with the priesthood there. But he also had political reasons. So he spent roughly 10 years far away from his kingdom, and essentially, by de facto, he left kingship to his son, Belshazzar, who we're looking at in this passage. 
I know that that is a bit confusing. Royal lions often are. But it's helpful knowing this history because it helps us to understand the narrative better, such as what does Belshazzar mean by promising to make Daniel the third ruler in the kingdom? Well, that makes sense if you have the real king, Nabonidus, far off, his son left as a de facto king, and then he can offer then a third ruling position. It actually helps us to understand the accuracy and the historicity of this text. And this was one that actually was called into question a lot by scholars because we didn't know Belshazzar from the Greek records. But then when we discovered the cuneiform, we say we saw that Belshazzar was indeed the son of Nabonidus. So the abruptness of Belshazzar's introduction helps highlight his insignificance, in fact. When we got introduced to Nebuchadnezzar, we got introduced to this conquering king, this guy who is defeating the Egyptians, defeating Jerusalem, taking the gold from the temple. But we just get this guy's name, and he's throwing a feast. It helps us to see his insignificance, but also the suddenness of judgment which will come upon him. But it also serves another purpose. By contrasting Belshazzar with Nebuchadnezzar, it's been noted by scholars, this contrast happens throughout this chapter. And we'll note these as we go. Chapter 4 ended with Nebuchadnezzar praising the Lord, with his last words being, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And the very next words that follow that statement is, Belshazzar, the king. And it starts to tell us of his great act of pride on the occasion of the feast which he made. In other words, with Nebuchadnezzar's ominous statement still echoing in our ears, we get the abrupt introduction to Belshazzar. We are primed to expect that this is a proud man whom the Lord will indeed humble and do so quickly. As such, we're told that he made a lavish feast and he invited a thousand nobles, the who's who of Babylon, all of those who were important. And he gives them this lavish feast. And we're told that they were in front of him as he is on his podium and he was drinking wine in front of them. The translation that he drank wine in front of them, it's not as helpful, it's not the best, for the verb is a participle. It's not simply that he just drank a cup of wine. The idea is that he was continuously drinking wine before them at this feast. In all likelihood to great excess. In the midst of his drinking bout, he gets the great idea in his head to have the vessels which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, remember it's emphasizes twice that Nebuchadnezzar took these from the temple of the Lord, he decides to have these brought in and to have them drink from them, along with his nobles and his wives and concubines, his harem. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar is described as his father, but as I noted earlier, Nabonidus is actually the literal father of Belshazzar. This word could just simply denote Nebuchadnezzar as his predecessor of king. That's, a way, that's one way this could have been taken. That's Our word father has 
more, much more restricted meaning. But it could also be the case that Nabonidus might have married into the family a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and that he is then his paternal grandfather. In any case, we are told that these sacred vessels taken from the temple of the Lord are brought into this pagan feast and are used as cups in the hands of his king, nobles, and his harem to consume their wine and worship their false gods. Understand that ancient feasts of oriental kings were not like office parties or modern social banquets. The mention of alcohol in the king's harem allude to the illicit behavior that would be taking place in this, the debauchery which would be happening. All of that is indicated by these words. This was a wicked feast. Moreover, these were not, strictly speaking, secular events, but were held in honor to their false gods. Even as Daniel says in verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We are meant to see an outrageous irony here. This pagan king and his cohort are using the vessels of the true and living God to pay tribute to false gods, which are made of blind, dumb, and deaf materials of this earth. We are meant to see the foolishness of idolatry in this passage. In doing this, though, the pride and arrogance of the king have gone too far. So we read, Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. So far in Daniel, God has revealed himself through dreams and through miraculous deliverance from the Lord. Now again, he provides a supernatural intervention by causing a hand and fingers to appear suspended before a wall, a plaster wall, and it wrote on this wall. Upon seeing this, the king's party is kind of spoiled. We're told that he saw this and his complexion was changed, likely from the rosy cheeks of a man well into his cups to a paler face of a man who is now scared to death. We are told that his limbs or loins were loosened and that his knees knocked together. It has that comical idea that you would see on a cartoon of a man's knees knocking together. The language of his loins or limbs being loosened, it could refer to he's no longer able to stand. But this wording is pretty close to saying that he lost control of his bodily functions. This proud king, who is full of wine, is now emptied in his pride and is humbled. At this point, Daniel returns to the pattern of the book As Nebuchadnezzar before, Belshazzar calls for all the wise men of Babylon, and he promises them rewards for giving the reading of this writing and its interpretation, thus far similar to Nebuchadnezzar. As Nebuchadnezzar had requested the telling of the dream and its interpretation, so too Belshazzar asked for the reading of the writing and its interpretation. As Nebuchadnezzar promised rewards and honor, so Belshazzar promises royal rewards and a position of power. He says that the man who can do this will be the third ruler in the land. That is, under him, even as he is under his father, Nabonidus. 
Yet once again, the wise men of Babylon aren't that wise, and they can't meet the requests of the king, but fail terribly. And with this, we see that the result is that Belshazzar is greatly alarmed, even as Nebuchadnezzar had been, and his wise men are perplexed, being able to neither read the writing nor give its interpretation. With all of this, word of the situation finally makes it to the queen, who upon hearing of the situation, enters the banqueting hall and addresses the king, saying, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Now, we are already been told that he had his harem. He had his wives and his concubines at this feast, whereas this woman is described as the queen. It's better to understand her not as Belshazzar's wife, but either his mother by Nabonidus or perhaps his grandmother by Nebuchadnezzar. And queens in the court at this time had a lot of authority and actual power. Notice also the irony, though, which Daniel's painting. First, the queen addresses him in a traditional way. O king, live forever. But as we know through the narrative, we know that this will be his last night on earth. This king will not live forever. This king who views himself as the big man on campus, who has openly mocked the Most High God, must be instructed by his mother or grandmother not to be alarmed and fear. We're supposed to see this man being humbled and seeing him as a piteous condition that he's in. He is not like Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor. He has no reason to boast. This man has received all that he had from another man. The basis of her comfort, she starts in verse 11 by saying, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Notice that she does not at first name Daniel, but praises him in language very similar to how Nebuchadnezzar praised him. Knowledge in a relationship, a spirit like that of the holy gods was within him. If you're wondering why Daniel had not already been called for, you have to remember that Daniel has been at this point in Babylon for somewhat 66 years. He's in his 80s. He's probably in retirement from the wise men job, especially with the changing of hands through the kingship. Yet, in describing the reason for his promotion, she states this about him, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. There's almost an excitement and enthusiasm in this queen's report of Daniel. She gives every adjective she can to say how excellent this man is. There's a couple things to consider here. First, notice how she identifies Daniel first by his Hebrew name, that my God judges, Daniel. Briefly explaining that the king had named him Belteshazzar, and then she concludes immediately by saying, have this man, Daniel, called. She uses the name which indicates his God, 
Second, Daniel utilizes a nice play on words here. Whereas earlier this revelation is said to have loosed the loins of Belshazzar, here the queen states that it is Daniel who can solve this problem. More literally, it's he can loosen the knots of this riddle. There's a funny play on words with mocking the king, even in this simple way. In this narrative so far, we see an arrogant king who, in the pride of his heart, has mocked the God of heaven and earth and has openly challenged him. Make no mistake, taking the vessels from the temple, drinking them in honor to the false gods, this is a direct challenge to the God of heaven and earth. And using these vessels in this way, taken from the Lord's temple, and using them at this wicked, debaucherous feast, Belshazzar has made a statement openly challenging the king of heaven, the God of Israel. In response, the true God reveals himself, sending the appearance of a hand to make writing on the wall. In response, the limbs and loins of this pagan king are loosened in his terror. Coming to his aid is his queen mother, who speaks of a Judean man who is able to loosen this knot, solving this problem. We are supposed to see the the pettiness, the insignificance of this king who calls on a Judean exile to solve his problem. There's a caution in this tale, though, for all of us. After all, in his praise, Nebuchadnezzar did not say that God is only able to humble kings. No, he said that God is able to humble all of those who walk in pride. You don't have to be a king to have pride, though it probably helps. As we reflect on this narrative, we must be self-reflective. Belshazzar is not a great king, and he had no great achievements. All that he had, he had received from Nebuchadnezzar's hand, from Nebuchadnezzar's success and achievements. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his turn, acknowledged that in the end, that all that he had, he had received from the hands of the Lord, the Most High God. As we look at our possessions, as we consider our achievements, as we assess all that we have and all that we are, do we give due credit to the Most High God? Or do we use what He has given us to worship and serve the things of this creation? If this be the case, we need to understand that with Belshazzar, the writing has been put on our wall. One day, we must give a recompense. Which brings us to our next and last point. We've just considered this foolish, debaucherous feast. Now let us consider a future foretold. And it will be a very short future. In response to the Queen Mother's request, Daniel is brought in before the king, and the king addresses him. You are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Now this moves fast, but think about the situation. Daniel, this 80-something-year-old man, is being woken up in the night, and he comes on the scene of this debaucherous feast, and he knows all that has taken place. And now this king addresses him, You are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought 
from Judah. Notice that in contrast to the honor and dignity that the queen mother gave to Daniel, proclaiming his wisdom and insight and acknowledging his high position under Nebuchadnezzar, here Belshazzar tries to put Daniel in his place. You're Daniel, one of those Judean exiles. But notice that he even has to admit that my father brought from Jerusalem. This man has done nothing. He's a petty king. Immediately he describes him as Daniel, an exile from Judah, brought here by Nebuchadnezzar. This is an attempt to discount Daniel's achievements and demean his person. He does not acknowledge or recognize the many years, 60-some years of service, faithful service, which Daniel has given to this kingdom. Yet in verse 15, he does acknowledge that all the wise men of Babylon, with their enchanters, were not able to read the writing or its, give its interpretation. Notice how in both verse 14 and verse 16, Belshazzar distances himself and questions Daniel's ability, saying, I have heard that the spirit of the most holy, or he doesn't even say the most holy, the spirit of the gods is in you. Or he says, I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Yet even with these insulting and perfunctory remarks, yet he still promises Daniel that he will get his royal rewards and be promoted if he can do this. In response to this, Daniel respectfully but really straightforwardly rejects the gifts and rewards saying, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Also, Daniel indicates that his divine insights are not given for hire. He understands also, that, which Belshazzar does not, that the promise of gifts and rewards and being promoted in this kingdom, that's not such a good promotion because this very night you are going to be sacked. Nevertheless, Daniel agrees to read the writing to the king and make known its interpretation to him. But he prefaces by saying in verses 18 through 19, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. Notice that Daniel first emphasizes that it is the Most High God who gave to Nebuchadnezzar greatness and glory and majesty, and that it is the Lord who gave him all peoples, nations, and languages to tremble before him. To him the Lord gave the power to rise up and to humble. But Daniel said, when Nebuchadnezzar hardened his heart and became proud, the Lord brought him down from his kingly throne with his glory taken from him. Further, Daniel describes how Nebuchadnezzar was driven from mankind and was made to dwell with the donkeys of the field, eating grass like an ox, and his body being made wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules over the kingdom of men and sets over it whom he will. In a similar way to how Daniel gave the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar and added a call to repentance, you remember that, he wasn't asked to give that. Same thing here. He's not going to miss an opportunity to preach to this wicked, debaucherous 
king who has just insulted his God so much. Having recalled that all that took place, prefacing it, that what took place with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel states in verses 22 through 23, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all of your ways, you have not honored. It is the queen mother who has reminded Belshazzar of Daniel. But no doubt, Belshazzar was familiar with Daniel, even as he knew that he was a Jewish exile. Remember, but situation of Nebuchadnezzar, it wasn't kept private. In fact, he's the one who wrote it out and sent it throughout all the land so that they might know and praise the Most High God. He would have been familiar with Daniel. He would have been familiar with how the Lord had humbled his father, Nebuchadnezzar, the actually great king who was humbled and acknowledged the Lord. In his rebuke, Daniel plays the part very much of a prophet, like Isaiah, chastising the nations for worshiping blind, deaf, and dumb idols. And he contrasts them with the God, in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all of your ways, saying that Belshazzar has not honored this God. This text reminds us, reminds me, of Paul in Athens. When he's going around seeing the, the altar, all the altars they have, and they even have that altar to the unknown God, from which he proclaimed to them, though, upon seeing this, that there is a God, and I'll proclaim the unknown God to you. He's the one who made the world and everything in it, the God in whom they themselves lived and moved and had their being. It is this God in whose hand is his breath. And it is this God from whose presence the hand was sent and the inscription given. It's at this point that Daniel finally answers the request and gives the reading, saying in verse 25, And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Daniel interprets these monetary nouns with verbal equivalents. He says in verses 26 through 28, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paras, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. As one commentator has pointed out, there is a past, present, and future aspect to this interpretation. Uh, Golden Gay states that they hint at three moments in God's dealing with him as king. The past moment when he appointed him, the present moment when he is evaluating his performance, in the coming moment when he breaks off his dynasty because of its failure. In other words, this is a monetary metaphor which highlights how God is weighing and evaluating Belshazzar, the God who appointed him in his sovereignty, who is now evaluating him, weighing him in the scales, and he is found wanting. He is not adding up. He is in deserving of judgment. Belshazzar has been weighed and found wanting 
falling far short of what should be expected of a king. Whether in fear, anger, or resignation that Belshazzar responded with, we do not know. We just read that quite impassionately he gives to Daniel the royal rewards and a position of power. But right after this, we read that that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Oh, how this night is differently ending than it started. He began by throwing a feast and by openly handedly mocking the God of heaven. Yet now, on this same night, he loses his life and his kingdom is received by another, Darius the Mede. There's various speculation on who Darius the Mede is, but no firm conclusions. We don't actually have his name on record in history, which doesn't mean that he didn't exist, even as it didn't mean that with Belshazzar when we found the cuneiform tablets, which say him. It just means we have an incomplete historical record. Perhaps it was another name for Cyrus, the Persian king, who indeed was in charge of this sacking of Babylon, and he had a general also. So this could be another name, maybe a Persian name, or a different name for Cyrus. It could be his Midian uncle, or a Persian general. We can't be sure. Yet we can be sure that God raised up Cyrus in the Medo-Persian kingdom, the chests and arms of silver, to succeed the Babylonian head of gold. The note that Darius was about 62 years old at this time, that does correspond well with the age of Cyrus at this time in 539 BC, which along with the other points to be discussed, leans me towards seeing this for what it's worth, Darius as another name for Cyrus. But we'll talk about that in later chapters as well. The narrative of chapter 5 began with a foolish feast, and now it ends with a future foretold. The foolish feast was a prideful act of Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, to exalt himself and to insult the one true and living God in whom was his breath and from whom he has all things. As a result, even as with his forebear, Nebuchadnezzar, had warned, he was humbled in his pride. But like Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar had his future foretold. Yet unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who had 12 months to repent, Belshazzar's life was required of him that very night. And let not the potter, or the clay say to the potter, why have you done thus, or how could you? The Lord gives mercy to whom he gives mercy, and he gives justice to whom he gives justice. He had sowed in the mockery of God and his servants, and he reaped a harvest of judgment and indignation. The same situation comes to us, with the same decision being given to us. Will we praise the God of heaven, or will we mock him, sowing the seeds of wrath and reaping the harvest of his judgment? Belshazzar received the writing on the wall written by the hand sent from God with his very fingers writing it. This warned the king of his sins and their consequences. But this isn't the first thing that God has written with his own finger. We know that on Mount Sinai, he gave his law written with the finger of God. 
All of us have received this law. All of us now have to respond to the writing which is on the wall or the writing which is given in God's word. How will we respond? How much even more than Belshazzar should we heed the word of God? We who have received this riches of his word and have heard the gospel and have seen what our Lord has done for us. The book of Daniel, as we study it thus far, is very helpful in pointing out our sins and the idolatry of our hearts. We have had two kings set before us, Nebuchadnezzar, whom the Lord worked on for years and whom he finally brought to faith and repentance. Yet also, Belshazzar, who had seen and known the Lord worked in and through Nebuchadnezzar, but who in himself, he did not learn from this lesson, but he hardened his heart in pride. Belshazzar was a fairly young king, and he probably thought that he had many days before him. Yet in the Lord's providence, his life was required of him that very night. In Luke 12, Verse 20, Jesus told a parable about a rich man who felt secure saying, who felt secure in his provisions. But Jesus says this, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In this parable, Jesus wakes us up from all of our Balthasarian foolishness and pride. All of us like to think that there will be a day for repentance in the future, that there will be a far-off day of reconciliation. I remember as a child growing up in a Christian home, you somewhat can be tempted to have this idea that I'm going to live how I want to live for right now and do what I want to do, and I'll remember the old gospel tales, and one day I'll become a religious person. Children, if you're thinking like this, teenagers, if you're thinking like this, adults, if you're thinking like this, that is not the case. We have no idea. Do not be this fool. Tonight, your very soul might be required of you. Maybe when you're driving home, I'm not even being... (laughs) It might be required of you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day in which you must call on the Lord. We cannot have this false hope that one day we're going to become religious. We don't know if we will have time like Nebuchadnezzar or whether we are like Belshazzar. And that is that very night that we must give an account for our thoughts, words, and deeds. But no matter what day, no matter what hour, none of us can make ourselves ready and become religious. No. At best, all of our righteousness is filthy rags, before the God with whom we have to do. But that is the point of God's law, which brings us to despair of ourselves and to look for the righteousness which he provides for us, the righteousness which comes by faith in Christ. The writing is on the wall. The writing is on the tablets. The writing is in this word. But this word, as it calls us to repentance, it also calls us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came into the world, this Jesus, the King of heaven, it was not to exalt himself over other people or to seek his praise over that of God, but in coming into this world, Christ said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
That is the king that we need to look to. The king who does not exalt himself, but who uplifts the lowly and who receives the weak. In faith, let us all confess and repent of our arrogance and pride, yes, and let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ as our God, as the God in whom we live and move and have our being, our Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for writing it, giving it to us. Thank you for giving us these examples of vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond. Take away our hard hearts. Give us hearts that can receive minds that know and tongues that confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us not to trust in ourselves. Help us not to trust in our religiosity, but help us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who came in this world to save sinners. Lord, we pray that we would always worship you, that we would use the things which you have given us, the, the thing, the people we are and all that we have, that we would recognize that it comes from you and that we would use all of these things to glorify your name, to bless your people, to spread your gospel. Lord, we pray that you would use this word which you have preached to us today to transform our hearts and to have us love our Lord Jesus Christ more and more. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, what you've all been waiting for. This is the Lord's Supper. This is why we make our vows. This is why we join the church so that we can be fed by the Lord at his table. The Lord Jesus Christ does not give a debaucherous feast that dishonors the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth and a body was prepared for him. The body, which you even see displayed here, bread representing the body which he gave for us in our salvation, the cup of wine which represents his blood which he shed for us. Jesus Christ is not proud. He does not exalt himself. He humbled himself for us. He humbled himself to the lowliest estate so that he might give us a feast, that he might give us a meal that we might feed on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. But even as we've just seen with the taking of vows, this supper is for those who have committed themselves to Christ, for those who have been claimed by Christ in the uh, sacrament of baptism, those who have been baptized, those who are members of a church, those who are actively repenting of their pride and sin, but are also looking to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. It is not perfect people. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus Christ nourishes and feeds sinners. This is a means by which he does that. Means by which we commune with him by faith. That his Holy Spirit, even now, is raising us up, as it were, into heaven, where we commune with our King, where we are anticipating the feast, the heavenly feast, which we'll give, which is to the glory of God, and which will never end. If these things describe you, Please, come, take of this feast. If these things don't describe you, I would ask that you let the elements pass, because it's a feast meant to be a blessing, not to be a curse. This is not to be something where 
you debauch yourself. But at the same time, I would urge you, now is the day of salvation. You do not know the day or the hour that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Now is the time to let maybe the elements pass, but never let the Lord Jesus Christ pass. Lay on to him and cling to him in faith. Amen. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless these ordinary elements to our spiritual use. Lord Jesus Christ, you are glorious. All your ways are glorious. We thank you that you are a humble king, that you came humble on a donkey, that you came and humbled yourself to the point of the cross, and that you did this so that we might be reclaimed, that we might be pulled out from sin, that you might exalt your Father in heaven, that you might raise us up with you. We pray that you'd be working in our hearts right now, that those of us who are going to partake, that you would work faith even more and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are not perhaps partaking, I pray that you would be working faith in their hearts and bring confession from their lips. Lord Jesus, this is your work. You do this. You use us as instruments and we're thankful, but it's your word and your spirit. We pray in the same way that you would bless these ordinary elements, this bread and this wine, that you would use them for your sacred purpose and that you would feed us with the finest of heaven, that we would lay hold of you. We ask all of this trusting in your person, your work, Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.